Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney joins us to answer our questions and yours. He's been a member of Connecticut's congressional delegation since 2007. He's a senior member of the House Armed Services and Education and Workforce Committees. If you live in the 2nd District and have a question for Congressman Courtney, you can join us too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Representative Joe Courtney joins us on Zoom today. Congressman, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's been a while. It has been. And just for full transparency, so your district covers mostly eastern Connecticut, but technically you're my congressman, too. I live up in Suffield, so you have a few towns in that north-central area as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, I continually remind my colleagues that they have it pretty easy geographically, but um, yeah, it's very sprawling, very diverse, and, um, uh, and keep on your toes. Now, uh, later on in the show, we're going to hear from Julia Bergman, who's a politics reporter for Hearst, Connecticut Media. Uh, Representative Courtney, I wanted to start with talking about the what happened at the U.S. Capitol on Friday. Uh, one police officer there killed another injured after a man uh, ran through a barricade. Uh, this follows, of course, the riot back in January when supporters of then-President Donald Trump tried to disrupt the ceremonial counting of electoral college votes. When you heard about what happened to Officer William Evans, what was your reaction? Uh, to be honest with you, there was a pit in my stomach because, um, you know, obviously we interact with the Capitol Police, I mean, on a continual basis every single day. And um, I, I just would say that, you know, the, the trauma of January 6th, where over 140 Capitol Police officers were injured, and some of them really seriously. Uh, the, the Justice Department just indicted um, another uh, rioter who uh, is charged with basically grabbing one of the cops and, and dragging him down the steps during the you know hours-long conflict that was going on there. And um, a lot of them are experiencing post-traumatic stress. A lot of them are, you know, having trouble coming back to work every day. Um, a lot of them are, you know, basically starting to ask themselves, you know, is this really what I signed up for? And to have this happen again, where, um, you know, again, a, an individual just out of nowhere um, for no good, you know, no reason, just attacked and, and killed uh, one of the, the force and uh, another one injured. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I'm going back down next week and I, um, you know, it's. I know there's there's again a post-traumatic stress uh, disorder phenomenon that's going here, and this thing was. You know, we were starting to feel like it was a little bit back to the normal rhythm down there. To have this happen is just really heartbreaking. And you know, I uh, we've got you know more work to do in terms of uh, making that place safe, not just for the people who work there, but also the people who protect uh, the capital. 
Uh, Representative Courtney, uh, when, when you head down to Washington, do you feel safe in the Capitol complex? You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, they, if you had asked me that question a year ago, I would tell you that, um, you know, in terms of evaluating risk, the Capitol always seemed like the safest place of all. And um, uh, because I think that, that we do have a really professional group of people. There's obviously lots of equipment. Um, and the district office, which is, you know, a little bit less um, hardened, you know, in terms of, of protection uh, is where I was, frankly, always a little bit more concerned. Um, the Capitol obviously lost its luster in terms of being sort of a, a completely sort of safe haven. And, um, you know, I think we're all getting briefed up about, um, you know, paying attention to what's um, in, our, in our surroundings, the... Um, you know, the, the fencing and the perimeter obviously looks a lot different. And, and I know there's probably going to be some modifications since uh, we left town about two weeks ago uh, in terms of the razor wire coming down. But um, I, the answer is, you know, that place is, is still very much a target for um, a lot of, you know, some people who are disturbed individuals or some people who, um, you know, just sort of are in this that's a small group, I think, you know, but ha have this sort of perception of, um, you know, the, the Capitol being sort of uh, a, a, a place where, you know, they lost their, you know, rights and their power and, and feel, you know, basically that, um, you know, using even violence uh, as a way to sort of push back against that is, um, you know, acceptable. And, and so that's why I think um, you know, there's a lot of work being done in terms of just how we try to balance access to the capital, which I, you know, in my heart still believes is so important in a democracy with um, obviously making sure that the people who work there are safe. Hmm. John's calling in <laughs> Madison with a question. Go ahead, John. John from Madison, go ahead with your question. Yes, hello? Yes, go ahead. Yes, I was wondering if uh, picking up on um, Representative Courtney's idea of the police force uh, wondering if they had signed up for this, if maybe up until now this has been sort of a police assignment light and uh, that they are now starting to consider to leave because they haven't been prepared for this psychologically, haven't been really trained for it adequately. So, I mean, look, I, I think, um, you know, there, there was actually a report that was released it just kind of did a complete soup to nuts inventory of uh, the training and um, capacity of the Capitol uh, Police Force. And there's definitely weaknesses that uh, Congress and the leadership have to address. So, um, you know, I think your point is well taken that um, I think that, that there was some complacency. I think the um, numbers of, of police were um, allowed to really um, slide uh, and, and, you know, that needs to, to be addressed. You know, I would say, though, that, you know, people really, again, have to recognize January 4th was just a, sorry, January 6th was an event that um, defied any, I think, expectation in terms of the amount of violence that took place that day. It's the largest number of first responders injured since 9-11. Um, obviously, uh, one uh, individual, Brian Sitnik, uh, lost his life that day. Two took their own lives afterwards, and I think it's pretty clear that it was the um, trauma and, and stress that uh, they uh, sadly and tragically couldn't um, 
uh, cope with. Um, and uh, there, there needs to be an all hands on deck approach here. The Justice Department, I think, in terms of the prosecutions and the um, you know coordination now with the uh, Department of Homeland Security in terms of just you know um, trying to recognize the fact that there are new groups out there that um, feel you know very empowered to to uh, use violence as a political tool uh, that is something that you cannot deny is is real that's happening out there you know it's tricky stuff you know the first amendment protects people's rights to you know be as angry you know verbally and, and as at you know politicians and and um, government uh, that's the crown jewel i think of our country uh, but uh, there's no question that you know, January 6th showed that, you know, the, um, you know, the, the new normal, that, that can't be the new normal. We, we have to recognize that, um, you know, that this, this process that takes place, you know, in the Capitol Dome is not just, you know, sort of cable TV talk show stuff. I mean, it's real. And, you know, we saw it with the American Rescue Plan, you know, that's enactment and a couple of other bills that gets overlooked even just in the last few weeks or so for veterans you know, real, real um, life uh, decisions are being made, made there. And we've got to make sure that that continues to function in a way that's safe. I wanted to follow up on political reporting that there was uh, about 233 vacancies within the U.S. Capitol Force, hundreds more on the brink of retirement, according to its union, another three dozen facing internal investigations for their own actions during the January 6th chaos. Earlier, Congressman, you said that you feel like this building is a, a target uh, for some people. And so I'm wondering, with the National Guard once there to protect the Capitol, uh, leaders of the House Armed Services Committee, which I believe you're a member of called for the removal of the National Guard from the Capitol. Given what happened last Friday, should they remain there? Well, I was not part of that group. And I, um, you know, um, right now we actually have, uh, I believe, you know, it's a thousand or so from the Massachusetts um, uh, Army National Guard um, that are, you know, the, the group that's there. And I've talked to quite a few of them, you know, talk Red Sox and sports and where you're from in, in New England, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I get it that, you know, having a sort of militarized presence at the Capitol is something that people are very um, uncomfortable with. I, I actually think that, you know, they have been really quite, um, you know, they, they have done their best to keep as low a profile as they possibly can. And I think, again, the event that took place last Friday, uh, I, personally, I think that, you know, there's going to be probably some pumping of the brakes because you're absolutely right, Lucy. The the, the um, number of Capitol Police officers, I think right now we're we're going to experience a downward uh, trajectory. And um, you know, how do you balance that in terms of you know the threat level that I think is still real that's out there? I mean, you know, it, at some point you need boots on the ground, literally. You're hearing Representative Joe Courtney again. He's the congressman for the 2nd Congressional District. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to talk about uh, the submarine force, but first, uh, Jim's calling in from Newtown. Jim, go ahead. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, since you had introduced the show on an economic note, I just wanted to ask uh, Representative Courtney, sir, do you support the increase to 28% in the corporate tax rate that Biden has proposed? And what can this country do to counter the long-term trend towards a plutocracy, really, and this 
terrible undermining of the middle class. And when we compare, you know, taxation rates back to Republican Eisenhower, the difference is there. Uh, I, I, I think that we, I wonder if you could speak to a path forward to creating uh, more income opportunity. And I noticed that NPR has been running a couple segments on guaranteed basic income, which is an interesting idea, which I had not known a lot about. Do you support that? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Well, that's thank a, you. Um, again, the infrastructure um, proposal that the president put out, um, I think, you know, responsibly has pay fors included in it. And as you point out, um, raising the uh, corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent um, in the wake of the Trump tax uh, bill, which I think cut the, the rate far too low from 35 to 21 percent, I think raising it to 28 um, is is reasonable, and I think it's important also to recognize, as you probably know, that you know the the corporate tax rate in terms of you know what a lot of corporations actually pay um, is is not necessarily the same number. So, for example, uh, a corporation that is using uh, tax credits for things like uh, research and development, the real net uh, corporate tax payment uh, is not going to be you know, 21% under the present law or 28 if Biden gets his way and I get my way, um, you know, the, the net, the true net tax rate for a lot of companies is still going to be far lower uh, because of a whole range of other tax credits that still um, are in the tax code. And we're not removed when the, the Trump tax plan was enacted back in 2017. Um, so, you know, that, that proposal I do think is, is part of a, a an effort to sort of rebalance who pays in terms of, um, you know, uh, initiatives like the infrastructure bill, which I, I think will in fact broaden um, prosperity for middle-class and working families in this country. I think that, you know, there's just no question that investing uh, in traditional infrastructure, which is, you know, the transportation stuff and, you know, roads and bridges, um, some of the, you know, I think wider, proposals in terms of infrastructure, whether it's uh, rebuilding America's uh, decrepit schools, uh, housing um, infrastructure, which is included in the Biden plan, electrification, strengthening the grid, um, you know, which is more, in my opinion, of a 21st century uh, vision of infrastructure, again, I think is all about broadening prosperity uh, in a way that I think would be very healthy uh, for our uh, society and also our, our democracy. Uh, in this $2.3 trillion, again, infrastructure plan, there's also a proposal to boost broadband, which I know in Connecticut, especially um, in areas like in your district, Congressman, uh, residents have trouble having reliable uh, internet, and this has become a problem, especially in the pandemic. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think, again, when we talk about infrastructure, broadband, you know, which didn't exist, you know, really 20, 25 years ago, now is legitimately um, deserving of being uh, part of an infrastructure uh, conversation. If you're, you know, an economic development um, official in a small town in uh, eastern Connecticut, which is the more rural, obviously, part of the state, or, you know, let's broaden the, the Zoom here and go into the Midwest or, you know, rural communities. If you don't have reliable internet service, you're not going to get economic development, period, full stop. I mean, it's just not going to happen. You know, what's interesting with COVID is that, you know, people are now saying how, you know, living uh, outside of cities, you know, whether it's suburbs or rural areas is now a lot more attractive, um, which is definitely real that's happening out there. But 
Um, and But for more rural parts of the country, they cannot take advantage of that sort of new uh, post-COVID, you know, possibilities unless they have reliable broadband and, and internet services. So I, I think this is something that, again, unfortunately, Mitch McConnell and Roy Blunt, who's a great guy, I've worked with Senator Blunt on a bunch of issues here, but they've sort of dismissed that as not real infrastructure. I mean, that is just incredibly um, short-sighted to take uh, that type of position. Lastly, I would just say, you know, dealing with, um, you know, trying to keep kids connected to schools, uh, you know, having reliable broadband, again, it's not, a, it's not a fluffy luxury item. It's really critical. And we know that there's parts of um, my district that really suffered because of lack of reliable Wi-Fi, you know, having even just the, you know, the equipment to, to connect to, to the learning in schools. And we've, we've, we've taken a hit in terms of learning loss during uh, this pandemic. And again, I think the president's proposal on broadband, as well as the school funding, which is, you know, encompasses some of that um, initiative, I think is critically important uh, as we try to pivot from uh, this recession. Again, you're hearing Congressman Joe Courtney here on Where We Live. If you have a question for him, especially if you live in the 2nd Congressional District, here's the number 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Representative Joe Courtney of the Congressional Second Congressional District. You can join us eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Congressman, you chair the Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee. Uh, during your time as Congressman, you focused on increasing submarine production. This is the manufacturing sector that contributes a lot to Connecticut's economy, also a significant workforce at electric boat in Groton. I understand that there are plans to hire about 1,100 people this year at EB. More than half of them will be engineers. So let's let's talk about what's driving this uh, this hiring trend. Sure. So um, again, I think uh, for a lot of people who are in the southeastern Connecticut region, I think they understand the long history of uh, electric boat, which goes back about 120 years. Um, it is a very unique um, work that's done there in terms of uh, building a highly complex platform, which uh, right now is in the highest of demand by the U.S. Navy. Um, again, just to put it in context, because you know, I, I you know, understandably a lot of people don't follow this maybe as closely as I do. But you know, at the end of the Cold War, there was roughly about a hundred attack submarines in the fleet. Uh, there clearly was not as, as strong a need by any stretch. You know, after um, the Cold War came to an end. And the legacy fleet that was in existence then is steadily and with increasing velocity being retired uh, because they were building them, them back in the 70s and 80s at roughly a clip of four to five a year. Um, you know, we um, went down to one a year for quite a while in this country in the 90s and early 2000s. Starting in 2011, uh, we have began. Um, restored a build rate of two a year, which we do collaboratively with the uh, shipyard down in Virginia. When that process started, the, the, the workforce down there was roughly about seven or 8,000. Uh, today, it's over 17,000. 
Um, and uh, again, I just want to emphasize, we're talking about recapitalizing a, a fleet, which has gone from 100 down to 50 today, and is going to continue to go down uh, in, in the 2020s into the 40s. However, at the same time, you know, we, we have uh, Navy uh, commanders in the Indo-Pacific region in the Atlantic who uh, right now are, it is their highest demand in terms of, um, you know, what submarines bring to the table in terms of um, deterrence, uh, intelligence gathering, et cetera. So as I said, the, the demand is very high from the Navy. Uh, a contract was signed about uh, a year and a half ago for uh, nine subs in the attack program, which would have broken the two, two per year cadence. It's been in existence since 2011. Um, there was an option to, to restore a 10th boat as it's called. And um, we were successful in the last Congress. Again, my subcommittee led the way. Um, I can say, I think perfectly accurately in terms of finding uh, a budget offsets to, to uh, you know, accomplish that fact. So about three weeks ago, uh, the Navy signed that, a contract for that 10th boat, which now means that the backlog of work at EB is about $39 billion, which is the biggest number uh, in the history of the company. Uh, so the hiring, as you point out, Lucy, is continuing. Uh, back in January, EB did a legislative breakfast, which they do every year. They were projecting about 900 new hires for Groton. Um, as you point out, that number now has grown to 1,100. We had the acting secretary of the Navy in Groton on Monday who uh, toured the uh, the facility down there, which is always for first timers, you know, kind of an eye-watering event. And um, and again, I think that, you know, the message that the two per year cadence is really um, incredibly important to maintain the stability of the workforce because the work that's done there in terms of metal trades and, and engineering, as you point out, um, you know, you can't sort of walk off the street and, and do that. And if you have sort of peaks and valleys in terms of production, you know, that creates a lot of instability, which is very difficult to recover. So, um, you know, we're waiting. The Biden administration obviously has a new team in, in charge, and um, the budget is probably going to be coming out sometime in, in May, it looks like at this point, which is kind of late. But again, it was a very, unfortunately, uh, very um, choppy transition with the prior administration not really working with uh, Secretary Austin and his team. But, um, you know, we're, we're still uh, having these visits up to Connecticut, like the acting secretary to, to really, again, see firsthand the great work that's being done and the fact that, um, you know, workforce stability, uh, you know, I think justifies continuing the, the build rate, which is now all sort of incorporated in that contract backlog that I just described. Certainly, uh, these contracts and this work that's being done, again, is good for Connecticut's economy, employing uh, many people. But when we think about the wars that have been fought over the last two decades, uh, the emphasis now on on cybersecurity, when you see uh, foreign uh, people hacking our federal government, interfering with our U.S. elections, is this the kind of resources that our government should be, continue to be spending when we think about uh, the future of cybersecurity and protecting our country, Congressman? So again, the, the the defense bill that was signed into law, actually it wasn't signed into law. We, we did it by a veto override. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump vetoed it, which was kind of, you know, incredible. But we had a very bipartisan majority to, to override the veto, included actually a very strong um, new initiatives on cyber and you know you're absolutely right that is incredibly important but i would also note that i mean if you just read the news in just the last few days in terms of what's happening 
um, in the Indo-Pacific region, where China now has the largest navy in the world, 355 ships, bigger than, than the U.S. is 270. Um, you know, they are uh, behaving in, in uh, international waters uh, in a way that is just completely and totally illegal. The U.N., um, you know, has completely rejected their claims of territorial control. And, um, uh, you know, allies, whether it's, you know, Australia, uh, Philippines, et cetera, are, you know, doing their best. And, and, you know, they're, I think, very anxious to make sure that they have a partner there. No one wants to start a war. Um, and as I said, submarines bring to the table the one survivable asset platform that the Chinese uh, missile technology has not figured out. And it is, in my opinion, a, um, a stabilizer in terms of making sure that uh, the tension, which is rising there, I mean, th that is undeniable. And Secretary Blinken, when he met with the Chinese foreign minister, um, you know, completely, I think, you know, unsolicited and unnecessary um, you know, attitude that was coming from uh, the, the foreign minister, um, you, you know, accusing the U.S. of, of uh, aggressive behavior, which is, you know, all the U.S.'s position is we want basically rule of law and freedom of navigation, period, which is good for everybody in terms of uh, trade and peaceful relations. And, and again, I, I would just say that, you know, you can make an argument that there are frankly some legacy uh, platforms in the Navy, surface ships that are very vulnerable right now in terms of China's advances in terms of missile technology. But um, but the submarine provides, as I said, the one sort of, um, you know, survivable asset that I think really rebalances, um, you know, the, the, I think, very aggressive posture that's happening out there. Putin uh, just, you know, quickly is has been engaging in a lot of other lawless behavior there about a, a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, they seized uh, Ukrainian Navy ships in international waters. Again, UN completely, totally um, found them guilty of, of violating uh, the navigation rules and um, they imprisoned the crews uh, in Moscow. Uh, again, totally, um, you know, flagrantly illegal. And, and I think that, you know, you know, we, we, we have to remember history here is that, you know, um, you know, navigation, uh, freedom of navigation is, a, is a, uh, a flashpoint when countries are trying to exercise extra legal uh, claims of, of, of control of, you know, passage of ships. And, it, and that is a really, I mean, we've succeeded so well since the end of World War II in terms of avoiding that kind of stuff. That um, you know, some, again, sometimes I think people have gotten complacent about the, the need to have a credible um, international, you know, collaborative effort to to keep our, our uh, international waters uh, free of um, claims of, of power, which is really what's happening in the Indo-Pacific region and in the European and the European um, uh, area of operations. You're hearing Second District Congressman here on Where We Live. Representative Joe Courtney is here to answer your questions to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, another uh, industry especially important in the, the southeast corner is uh, what's been happening with uh, casino gambling over the decades. We now know Connecticut has a deal with the two tribes uh, in Connecticut to expand uh, 
uh, gambling uh, to allow online uh, sports betting. This is now um, needing approval, not only by our state legislature, but the Bureau of Indian Affairs on the federal level. So what can you tell us about this process and uh, why this, this expansion is needed? So again, both um, tribal casinos operate under a federal law, the uh, you know National um, Gaming uh, Native American Gaming Act. And so, when um, the the casinos were first established uh, in southeastern Connecticut, both Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods, again, it was part of a, a government-to-government compact, which is what basically the Gaming Act sort of um, sets up. Uh, it when that was um, created and executed. There was no such thing as sports gaming. You know, that was completely uh, against the law. And the Supreme Court about two years ago, uh, Murphy versus NCAA, uh, struck down that restriction, which, again, has now opened up uh, sports gaming. States like New Jersey um, and others, you know, pounced the minute that that uh, ruling came down. Uh, Connecticut, again, has been involved in a pretty protracted process, which finally, I think, um, is looking like it's going to come together. Uh, you know, because of an agreement Governor Lamont negotiated with both tribes. Uh, we had a big announcement in Norwich about a couple of weeks ago to sort of footstomp, you know, that uh, milestone. The legislature um, has to pass this arrangement. And then uh, it goes, as you point out, straight to the Department of Interior, where Secretary uh, Deb Holland, um, you know, can review um, the, the new arrangement. Uh, again, they've got about 60 days to, to make a decision. And, and, you know, I'm pretty bullish that we're going to get um, support from the Department of Interior. There was a pretty weird episode that took place under the Trump administration where the uh, prior sort of agreement involving East Windsor, uh, you know, was basically derailed by um, uh, the secretary at the time who was communicating with uh, senators and members of Congress from Nevada because MGM um, I think it's pretty well understood, had a you know strong interest in terms of not letting that happen to affect um, the Springfield. None of that um, you know kind of drama surrounds where where I think we are today with with Connecticut. and um, and I and again, I think you know certainly myself and I'm sure the whole delegation will strongly support uh, Lamont and the legislatures um, and and the tribal uh, nations uh, agreement that they've hammered out. What will this mean for people who are struggling with gambling addiction now that it, it will be so accessible when this is all approved to uh, just bet on, on your cell phone that's in your pocket, Congressman? Well, it's a serious problem. And um, sports gaming, as you point out, particularly if you can do it on your phone, um, is something that, um, is, you know, I think adds a layer of, um, you know, problem and intensity to this issue that's there. I, I would say that, number one, the, the tribes uh, contribute a substantial amount of money to uh, Connecticut's, you know, gaming, um, you know, behavioral health programs. Um, and I think with, with sports gaming, this is, and, and this was talked about uh, in Norwich, uh, the day the agreement was announced that, you know, this is going to have to be really, I think, you know, boosted um, to make sure that uh, people uh, are aware of the, the issues that we've got to make sure technology is put in place to try and limit um, young people, particularly from, uh, you know, using, you know, this new, um, venue and, uh, and, and, but I, but I would just say that, you know, right now, you know, that we're, we're in a situation where, uh, states around us are all moving in this direction. And I would rather have, um, a, a situation in Connecticut where we have 
more control than just sort of, uh, you know, letting people find their way to uh, sports gaming through uh, other less, I think, um, responsible uh, outlets than the, than the tribes. I mean, they really get this. And, and I think, you know, if you had uh, Chairman Butler or, or Chairman Gasick, you know, on from uh, both tribes, they, they would be very vocal in terms of, you know, uh, expressing their uh, commitment to addressing that problem. Again, you can join our conversation with Congressman Joe Courtney, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about Connecticut's uh, strategy to roll out uh, vaccines uh, to all of its residents. There have been uh, widespread disparities when we look at uh, people of color in our state uh, and the lack of access uh, in the beginning. Um, it's starting to get better with more pop-up clinics and not having to make appointments. But I'm wondering, when we're thinking about people in our rural towns, uh, Congressman Courtney, uh, how has Connecticut been doing in getting the vaccine to them? So I, I think your description that we're getting better is, is the way I would characterize it. The, um, you know, the mass vaccination sites, which were, you know, a very sort of efficient way to get, you know, big numbers initially, um, didn't work so well, you know, for people you know, particularly people, even, you know, elderly groups trying to get up to Rensselaer Field. Um, and, um, you know, over time, I think we're, we're seeing a lot more um, uh, outreach in terms of some of the smaller towns. I, you know, I come from Vernon, which uh, I, I have to give the, the hometown shout out to the mayor and the, and the uh, town manager who have done a really good job of not just doing stuff in Vernon, which is, you know, somewhat of a suburban town close to Hartford, but just a, a couple of days ago, we there was a vaccination uh, clinic at uh, Oak Ridge uh, Farms in Ellington, which is the largest dairy farm in New England. And uh, the workforce there, which uh, again, a lot of them are uh, migrant uh, workers, uh, were able to get their shots that they otherwise, I think, would have really struggled uh, to, to get to. The, the federally qualified health centers are also uh, just got some federal funding uh, through the rescue plan to to boost um, vaccine clinics in places like Plainfield, um, you know some of the other smaller towns that are happening out there. You know Foxwoods and Mohegan both have also stood up um, drive-throughs, which again is a little closer to Eastern Connecticut, but um, the the Quiet Corner in particular, uh, you know places like Plainfield and uh, uh, Generations. Uh, health center, which is up in that region there. I, I think, you know, that's where that funding, which again, just arrived a couple of weeks ago is so important to make sure that uh, people up there don't get sort of left behind. Cause you know, it's the tyranny of distance when you talk about, um, you know, parts of Eastern Connecticut where, you know, the interconnection to interstates is virtually no mass transit. You know, it's hard for people to just sort of um, find a way to get to, to, um, the vaccines that, that we obviously want to get done as quickly as possible. Were you hearing from constituents that were having trouble in the eastern oh, yeah. part of our state? Absolutely. Yeah, I did, I did telephone town halls and, um, you know, definitely people were just saying, you know, Rensselaer Field was just not an option for them, you know, because of either lack of transportation um, and, you know, what are we going to do about, you know, getting help? So, you know, in Enfield, they worked with Johnson Memorial Hospital, which is you know, kind of a rural hospital up in Stafford there to set up a, a, a vaccination program at Fermi High School. Um, 
And again, the pop-ups have definitely been happening. Uh, by the way, I would point out the VA because we have the highest concentration of veterans in the state. They have done a, a remarkably good job. They, again, have their own system of vaccination that's separate from the state of Connecticut. And they have been doing pop-ups. Um, and, you know, down Waterford and you know, London, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that the Connecticut VA healthcare system is number two in the country in terms of VA healthcare systems, in terms of the vaccination rates. Uh, that uh, they've been able to accomplish. I mean, it's it's really, um, uh, and it's because of leadership. They've just done a really smart, good job of, of um, you know, just getting it out there. Again, you can join us, Congressman Courtney's with us for just a few more minutes, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, the Biden administration, Secretary of Energy, recently announced plans to expand offshore wind farms along the East Coast over the next two decades. Uh, we know there's a major project underway in New London to rebuild State Pier as a base for the construction of offshore wind turbines. Uh, can you talk more about uh, this agreement between New London and these companies? and how it will impact uh, southeastern Connecticut and our um, energy choices in the future, Congressman? Yeah, I think, you know, what the Biden announcement at the end of March uh, signaled is that, um, you know, they are completely committed 1,000% to expand renewable energy and offshore wind is going to be a huge part of that. And clearly, from, you know, on the East Coast, really from Maine all the way down to Virginia, uh, you're going to see um, these towers um, going up. And the decision to uh, locate a wind turbine assembly facility at State Pier, uh, which has really been um, a state asset that for, you know, as long as I've been in Congress has really struggled in terms of really getting uh, the true potential of uh, operations there, I think is um, got elevated as a result of that, that announcement um, by uh, the Biden administration. So, um, you know, I was definitely involved in helping Mayor Passero get what I think was a, a really uh, obvious need for a fairer arrangement, which we succeeded in terms of the annual payments that uh, Orsted and Eversource are going to pay to the city. Again, it's tax-exempt uh, parcel, um, and that's always been New England struggle, a New London struggle down there. But um, uh, that combined with um, the fact that um, you know we were able to protect the rail line that runs from uh, the pier all the way up to Vermont, access to uh, you know other forms of cargo. Uh, again, that was a federal project, which we got funding for, and my office was very deeply involved in that a number of years ago. The, the rail line was over 100 years old and couldn't really do much weight bearing in terms of cargo. So we were able to preserve that rail access. And lastly, the, the Crescent Ferry, which is part of that intermodal, you know, really exciting, um, you know, potential that New, New London has had been actually blockaded <laughs> when the first version of the um, the wind project, when it first was released, we were able to, again, get them to rearrange the footprint. So Cross Island Ferry can continue to do, um, you know, again, it's ferry service. So, um, you know, it's change and there's definitely people who are frustrated that, you know, we're not able to, um, you know, accommodate every single user that would like to have access to, to the pier. But I do think, um, you know, the, the Biden announcement really um, shows that, you know, this is going to be a big change, which for Connecticut, I think is, is ultimately very positive. We're a user of energy, primarily in terms of fossil fuels um, and having, uh, you know, wind power now, you know, that's going to get 
um, pumped into our grid directly to power hundreds of thousands of homes, um, I think is a real change in terms of just the, the whole sort of, um, you know, structure of our economy and of, um, you know, obviously the, the environmental benefits um, are, are enormous as well. So, um, you know, lastly, there's some companies that are going to, who, who specialize in undersea uh, technology. Thayer Mahan was part of the announcement that took place at the end of March that's getting some contract from the Department of Energy. These are ex-submariners. Uh, Admiral Mike Connor, who was a three-star, um, is the CEO of that com- company. He's a former admiral. And um, they bring to, to the table the ability to, to have undersea platforms that can track the cable lines that connect the towers to the grid, as well as um, help you know, with marine life tracking to keep keep it safe uh, out there and also to help with navigation to help our um, fishermen that are out there. And again, you don't find a workforce like that in many parts of America, but you can in Connecticut because of this unique history that we have with the submarine industry. There's a lot of potential, uh, but the cost of the state pier project continues to grow. Uh, the state's going to have to pay a majority of that amount, uh, about $120 million. There's also questions about the Connecticut Port Authority. Do you have confidence in the authority's ability to get this done? So look, at you know, I, I've been around when it was before the Port Authority and the State Department of Transportation was, you know, um, basically managing that property and they were not doing a very good job. Uh, Senator Andy uh, Maynard was the guy who, who introduced the legislation creating the Port Authority. Uh, I would just say that they had tremendous growing pains. And I think, you know, every decision should be uh, public and transparent and held to account. And I, you know, think that that's, we're all accountable. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, in terms of the the partners that they're they're bringing in, uh, Orsted uh, is a uh, a company that does wind energy in Europe and has you know a very strong background in terms of uh, knowing what they're doing. As I said, we 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 had to hammer them and 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 the parties to get a fair arrangement for the city of New London, which again was neglected the first go around in terms of the deal that was put on the table. So again, I, I think that, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, criticism that's come in to the Port Authority has been healthy. I think, you know, the, you know, dealing with the rail line, dealing with Cross South Ferry, dealing with a, a host city agreement for that's better for the, for the city um, and, and, you know, bringing to bear all the transparency and freedom of information that um, the law provides. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're, everyone knows this is something that, um, we're all going to be watching like a hawk. And the Port Authority, uh, I think, understands that. There's some new um, leadership that's there. And, um, uh, and but, you know, as I said, at the end of the day, it, it's a quasi-public, and I would emphasize more the public um, side of things in terms of making sure that they perform their job. We'll have to leave it there. Again, Congressman Joe Courtney, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy. Take care. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll get some context on what we've talked about with the congressman. Julia Bergman joins us, politics reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney joining us now with some more context behind uh, the topics we discussed. Julia Bergman joins us, politics reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. 
You were a longtime reporter for the Day of New London. You've covered Congressman Courtney uh, for many years. Uh, we spent a good time uh, talking about uh, the electric boat and uh, the value of this, uh, again, providing uh, submarines uh to benefit our national security. I'm curious if you can talk more about some of the 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 energy and effort that's going on down there in manufacturing uh, with this uh, tube subcontract. Yeah, I think you know there was a recognition um, pretty early on when EB got one of one of the first sort of um, of these biggest co- big contracts um, that we needed the workforce. Right, I think the congressman. Um, mentioned that really we're talking about a level of production that hasn't existed uh, since the Cold War. And that means the workforce had also, you know, shrunk, but also, um, you know, it's uh, an aging workforce uh, with a lot of retirements each year. Um, and, you know, the need for new people to come in and and learn these skills, which, you know, in a lot of cases are obviously very high, highly proficient. We're talking about, you know, types of welding jobs that are very, um, you know, specialized. And so I think early on, um, there was a recognition by stakeholders in the community and um, particularly the Workforce uh, Investment Board in this area um, that there needed to be to programs and, and pipelines set up in order to to train the level of people that was needed, that it wasn't um, going to be able, electric boat wasn't going to be able to do it on its own, essentially, you know, hire all these people and uh, and train them. So is there any challenge with finding this new workforce when we think about uh, manufacturing skills? Yeah, I think, you know, to a certain degree, it's, um, there is, I think a lot of it is about, um, you know, making sure that people are aware of these programs. Um, You know, in many cases, students now in high school and even middle school, uh, and in this area and beyond are being talked to about these job opportunities, um, you know, and kind of letting them know what they are. And you're seeing in a lot of the the technical high schools in particular, and and some of the community colleges, um, specific programs, you know, um, catered towards these jobs at um, electric boat. So I think it's more um, at this point about sort of letting people know that these jobs exist, um, you know, and getting them connected with these programs, um, you know, and in some cases, it's people coming out of high school or college, but um, in other cases, it's people who are, um, you know, doing a career change, right? Or maybe they've been underemployed for a period of time for whatever reason, um, and are looking kind of to get um, a job in an industry that right now is fairly stable and, and is, um, you know, providing good wages. I'd mentioned Congressman Courtney's been in this role since 2007. Uh, the second district uh, encompasses a lot of different towns, but would you say this is one of the most important issues that any representative uh, needs to focus on is, is protecting this industry and the jobs associated with it, Julia? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a real economic driver for this area. Um, and uh, it's been that, you know, it's been that way for a little while now. I mean, I think it's important to point out that this is all subject to congressional approval, right? So right now in recent years, we've had a Congress that has um, appropriated money for these submarine programs, but um, certainly there has been, um, you know, events in the past. Uh, history has shown us that, you know, if sort of the national security picture in the U.S. or the world changes, that Congress can choose to divert this funding somewhere else or cut it. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think that um, a lot of people see, 
the the contracts coming into EV as opportunities for jobs for people in this region. Um, but I think it's also important to point out how much money we're talking about here. It's it's a lot of money. It's a lot of taxpayer money. Um, for example, EB is the prime contractor for uh, a new program to build uh, 12 ballistic missile submarines. And that program is estimated to cost 110 uh, billion with a B, obviously, uh, you know, dollars. So that's that's a huge investment. Again, we're hearing Julia Bergman, uh, who's covered uh, Congressman Courtney uh, for many years. She now works for Hearst Connecticut Media. We spent a little time talking about the state pier. Uh, again, what offshore wind uh, will uh, be looking like, hopefully, in the next uh, few decades. It has been interesting that to hear Congressman Courtney say, with all of the scrutiny towards uh, the Port Authority moving forward, they'll be watched like a hawk. Will that be enough, Julia? Um, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, I think uh, there were a lot of lessons that the state legislature here learned about, um, you know, forming these quasi-public agencies, which is what the Connecticut Port Authority is, which has, you know, oversight um, over a lot of that, uh, over say Pierre, um, you know, and maybe how much sort of freedom they unintendedly uh, gave these quasi-public agencies or, you know, realizing that some of the, the um, you know, laws that created these agencies maybe didn't account for or have, you know, strong enough controls in place. But, you know, I think a lot of um, regular, you know, people in the general public are watching and there's there's been a lot of public uh, of pressure from, you know, kind of just citizens and obviously people who would be, you know, affected by, you know, the development here. And so um, I think that's important as well for, for the general public to, to have buy in here and to, um, you know, pay attention to what's going on. We'll have to leave it there. Julia Bergman, again, a reporter, politics reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. Thank you, Julia, for coming on. Thanks so much, Lucy. Have a good one. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back tomorrow.